So again, you should have two separate maps. One uh, is entitled Age of the Patriarchs. The other one is entitled Abraham in Canaan. Um, I'd like you to uh, take the first one, uh, the Age of the Patriarchs first. And I want to look at some of the stuff in there. But, uh, you know, I was being a little bit humorous there, but <coughs> seriously, do not lose this. Wherever you're keeping all your stuff, keep these maps with you because we will, honestly, we will be looking at these virtually every class that we meet until we finish Genesis. And since we're in chapter 12 now and there are 50 chapters, that's quite a long time. So it'll just help you uh, to be oriented to uh, the events and the place names associated with the book of Genesis. And I might, uh, might add that Every, everything that is mentioned geographically in the book of Genesis that we are now studying is identifiable. We know where it is. And in most cases, uh, in many of the places I've been to, but in most cases, I mean, there, there are identifiable, clear archaeological discoveries and all kinds of details, artifacts that, that just validate the truthfulness of what is being stated in the scriptures. Do those two sentences make sense to you? So when I am giving you a, a map, like or actually two maps like this, it's, it's based on a very historically verifiable place names that the book is mentioning. And uh, it's just, it's so exciting because we're talking about real history here. And what is going on at this period of time is one of the most significant periods in ancient history. So if you take a look at the, uh, we have already begun our study, but I want to rehearse again using the map, some of the things we studied last time we started Genesis chapter 12. The age of the patriarchs. Now remember, Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees. So you want to find, I just took a yellow mark and highlighted, but you want to find Ur. You are. Okay? That is, uh, it's you are, you should be able to see it. That was where Abraham lived when God spoke to him and he responded in obedience and left. God said to him, I want you to get out and go to a land that I will show you. And Abraham and his family, if you remember, we studied this last week, Lot, his father, his wife, Lot's wife, and his kids all left. What did they do? This area in the ancient world is sometimes called the Fertile Crescent because it's kind of like a crescent, but it's the most fertile part of the ancient world because these are two river valleys. This is the great Tigris-Euphrates River Valley. This would be today modern Iraq. Okay, so he went from Ur up, <coughs> excuse me, up the valley to Haran, H-A-R-A-N. You should find that and mark that. Every indication in, seems to point to the fact that this was where his father, that is Abram's father, was from. Tira was his name. And so he went back to his homeland. Okay? Can we go back for a minute? Yeah, please. Is that right across from Memphis? Uh, no. Well, Memphis is way over here. No, we're over here. We're over here. Okay. Did you, you find it? Okay, good. And so the Haran is up here. So they went up the valley. That is about a 600-mile trip to go from Ur to Haran, you know, roughly speaking. That's about a 600-mile trip. What was the name of the first city, Jim? 
U R Ur. U R. It's down here. Down in. in it's. I'm. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's. It's very small. Oh, I see. But it's. You know, I'm looking at it. I'm holding it up, so it would be to my left, your right. So this is just desert in here. This is a desert. This is this is a very desolate area between this river valley and well between this river valley and the coast, the Mediterranean. This is this is a very barren desert area. I'm sorry. That's why there are no cities. I mean, nobody lived there. It was a, a, a group of Bedouin tribes, but they, I mean, there, there was no settled, civilized, civilized means city, to be uh, that are there. So, yeah, that's why he would go, nobody would go across the desert. That's a 500-mile trip across the desert. That's nuts. Nobody would do that. So, I mean, you, this, is, this was a very common tra- trade route. Okay, so he's in Haran, <clears throat> and we read last week, I, I'm not sure how far we got, I can't remember, But we read last week that he then enters, he is Abram, he enters the promised land, so he moves from Haran, and by the way, this is a major, a major international roadway, it's called the King's Highway, it's road down here in Arabia, went up along the mountains, and it tells us in verse 6 that he stops in Shechem, so if you can see where I am, he's gone from Haran down to Shechem, okay? Now, it is at that point that I would like you to take the other map <laughs> for now. And this, like, enlarges the travels of Abram in Canaan, okay? And you should be able, again, to find Shechem. You should be able to find that. It's a little bit on the upper side of the north side of your map. And just for now, and you might also just let your eye go down the roadway from Shechem, just go down the south a little bit, and you'll find Bethel. B-E-T-H-E-L. That's another important landmark. We'll be getting to that in just a minute. So, as we move into chapter 12, Abram is in Canaan. In obedience to God, he is in Canaan, and that's where we're going to pick up. Okay, now I just wanted to review the geography of this for you, and for the last time I'm going to say it, do not lose these maps. I don't know what I'll do with you if you lose them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not going to be good. So anyway, but just keep, I mean, Bible study... Bible study comes alive when you put real geography in real places and you can understand what is going on. Now, maybe one other very, very quick comment. Abraham, uh, Abram was born 2166 B.C. Abraham lives roughly, I mean, you round off, just always easy to remember, you just round it off. Abram lives about 2000 B.C. I mean, just it, technically he's born in 2166 B.C., is when he was born, and he dies in 1991 B.C. But, I mean, they're hard to remember those exact dates. So just round it off. The easiest way, Abram lives about 2,000 B.C., and you'll just always remember that. So another way of saying it, Abram lived uh, 4,000 years ago. What was going on 4,000 years ago in the world? There were two major superpowers. The superpower that was associated with, going back to our original map, 
the superpower that was associated with Mesopotamia, which was Babylon, then Assyria, then back to Babylon. The other major superpower was Egypt. Okay? They're the two superpowers. And it just went back and forth, back and forth. Who was the top, the top dog in, in the ancient world? And isn't it instructive that Canaan is right in the middle of these two? So where are most of the battles between the Mesopotamian civilizations and Egypt going to be fought? In Canaan. In Canaan. The most fought over piece of real estate in world history is Israel. And when I say Israel, I'm talking about you know what you think as the modern geographical, but it's it's in the ancient world before Abram, it's Canaan. It's this strip of land. That's the most fought over piece of territory in the history of the world. The Jezreel Valley alone, which is Mount Carmel down to the Jordan River, two, something like 265 battles have been fought in that valley. Such a strategic valley, it's a natural place. But I'm saying all that, see, that's the issue because the, the land that God promises to Abram is the bridge of land that connects three continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe. It connects three continents. And it's, it's one of the most valuable pieces of real estate politically and, and economically in the history of the world. And it has been the most, most fought over strip of land simply because it's caught in the middle of two great civilizations. And it will be that way. If, if you know anything about what happens, you know, they'll fight, fight Egypt, Mesopotamia, fight, and then along, then along comes Persia. And then Persia conquers all this area. And then after Persia, then Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquer this area. And then when the Greeks are done with it, then Rome conquers it. And then when Rome's done with it, Islam conquers it. And then in Islam start, the Ottoman Empire is dismembered, Britain and France take it. And then finally, in 1948, the world declares a homeland for the Jewish people. And so, I mean, it's just, it's one of the most fought over pieces of land in world history because of its strategic location. So God says, Abram, I'm going to give you that land. And so the stories, the narratives that are associated with Abram are the narratives and stories of a series of covenant promises God makes to Abram and his descendants. All right, now, we've reviewed the geography, we've reviewed big picture history stuff, now we're going to go back to the text. Is everybody with me? Now, we're in chapter 12. Last week, as we finished chapter 11, and we then transitioned into chapter 12, we didn't get through all of it, but we transitioned to it, and we learned something. Abram is in Ur. God calls him. He goes to Haran, and, and because he obeyed, God made him a promise. He made him a threefold promise. It's a promise that has three parts to it. And since every one of you is a good student and never forgets anything I say, thank you. I think I said that tongue in cheek, but maybe I didn't. Maybe I really meant that. But we call this the Abrahamic covenant. And this, this covenantal promise that God makes to Abraham has three parts. I said there are three words that can help you to easily remember the parts of that problem. Do you remember what it was? 
land, information, and land. seed, and blessing. And God is going to repeat these three promises throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. He's just going to keep repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. He's going to repeat it again and again and again to Abraham. And then when Abraham dies, he's going to repeat it again and again to his son Isaac. And then when Isaac dies, dies he's going to repeat it again and again and again and again to Jacob. And then throughout the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, over and over and over and over and over again, God keeps reminding them of this promise. Abraham, I am going to give you seed, descendants. Out of your loins is going to come an entire nation of people. That will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand of the seashore. Abram, I'm going to give you land. He's going to, in the next two chapters, God is going to specifically identify the boundaries of that land. And then thirdly, he says, a blessing. In you, Abram, in you, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And as we study the rest of God's word, the other 65 books of the Bible, that blessing is the blessing of salvation. That through Abraham's seed is going to come, through Abraham's descendants, is going to come a Savior. And that begins to narrow down. As you leave the Old Testament, we learn from that line of Abram is a line that's a royal line. It's the line of David. And who is the descendant of David? Jesus, Jesus the Christ. So this is, again, one of the, the, the Abrahamic covenant is one of the unifying themes of the Bible. It ties the Bible together. And so we are just beginning our study of this. How God makes these promises, and, will, and you will see it, he will begin to fulfill these promises. And if we would take the rest of of this decade, maybe well into the next decade, and study every book of the Bible, you would see how these three promises just are the knitting threads that keep being tied together to explain what God is doing. Because out of this seed is going to come David, which will then produce Jesus. And out of the blessing is going to come the new covenant blessings of salvation. And the land is going to be the establishment of the land of Israel, ruled by the kings, David, Solomon. I'm not sure what that means, but... God is speaking. Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know what's happening, but anyway. So I am, I'm going to, you're going to hear me repeat this dozens and dozens and dozens of times in our in our study in the months ahead. It's going to take us quite a long time to get through the book of Genesis. We've got 11 chapters down. We're in chapter 12, right in the middle of it. So we only have just a few more chapters to go to get to chapter 50. I would be happy to do that. I'll tell you, because I'm getting old, one of you had better email me and remind me to do that. Because in my old age, I have a tendency to forget things. Are you saying color? you have color copies? Um, well, I can send electronically. Yeah. I can send you an electronic that copy that is color. Because the original, this is color. Yeah. Okay. The original, this is color. Yeah. 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 Ye
<laughs> and then, and Joe, you better send Woody a reminder so Woody can remind about well, four other people here. But, but and I, I'm being a little, but honestly, it is it is really true. It, I, I, and part of it is I'm busy with a lot of things, but if I don't write it down or somebody says, I'll forget. I'll commit to doing something and I forget. So maybe that's what it is, the clutter. Yeah, I, I, that's it. I'm attributing it to old age. You're attributing it to clutter. Maybe they're the same thing. I don't know. All right. Let's pick up with, with verse 4 of chapter. Even though we covered some of this last, let's just pick up there again. So Abram went. What does it mean, went? He went from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran. And as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, now he's leaving Haran. Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. What that means is more than likely, not slaves or anything like that, but Abram had a huge herd of animals. We're going to read more about that. A huge herd of animals. So these are presumably employees, the herders and shepherds that went with them. I mean, Abram is a man of wealth, as you, and wealth in the ancient world was measured largely by animals. He's, not, he's a nomad. He is not a farmer. He's not settling down and farming. His wealth is in animals. So it goes on and says, And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the Oak of Moray. The Oak of Moray is just a a grove of trees. The importance is Shechem. I pointed that out in your map. Now I should say, this is really important, just for historical information, that throughout this area, and that's what he followed, this is an international roadway. It's called the King's Highway. There was another international road which went right along the coast. Now that, that doesn't look like it's very wide, but it is. It's quite a few miles wide. These two roadways would meet up near Haran, up in the area of Damascus. So I'm saying he's just following, naturally he's following a roadway. And he settles in Shechem. You will see, if you know, it'll take us a long time to get through this, but you will see the city of Shechem is going to become a very, very important city. Shechem is in the middle. It's a little town, a little community, a little village, a little city, right in the middle of two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. I don't know if you recognize that, but Mount Gerizim is going to become one of the great centers of the uh, uh, Samaritan people much later in history. Jesus will talk to a Samaritan woman right at the base of Mount Gerizim. I'm telling you, that's getting, I'm giving you too much information. I think I've lost you. But Shechem is going to become a very, very, very important town. And that's the first place that he settles. Now notice, notice what he does. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. That's just reminding us and reminding Abram This land at this point, it belongs to Canaanites. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give you this land. There's that land promise. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. First example of Abram voluntarily, willfully worshiping God. 
God is revealing himself to him. He is responding in faith and he's responding in worship. The importance of Abram is he is a man of faith. It is extraordinary what this man is doing. He is responding to God in faith. Verse 8, from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. If you go to your map, Abram in Canaan, you should be able to find, find Shechem and just let your eye go south, let your eye go down to the map, and you will see Ai on one side, Bethel on the other side, and right in the middle is where he pitches his tent. What does that mean? He is going to, he's a nomad, so this is where he temporarily settles. He's not going to stay there, but he temp, he, he's going to settle. And it tells us again, there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. What is this telling? It's just telling us, here's a man obeying what God wants him to do, moving through Canaan, and building a series of altars as he moves. You find Ai and Bethel? You use the uh, Abram and Canaan now. <clears throat> All right, is everybody with me? All right. Verse 9. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now again, using your map, Abram and Canaan, you're at Ai and Bethel, just keep going down the international highway, and you will see Negev, N-E-G-E-B. See it? It's right where it starts to take a turn to go over to Egypt. That's Negev. The Negev is the name of a desert. This is a desert in the southern part of Canaan. If you go with me on my next trip to Israel, I'm sort of starting to think that I might go one more time. But anyway, I'll take you to the Negev. That's where the city of Beersheba is and many other cities. But anyway, so he's now, what has he done, man? Abram has, on the east side, he has traversed the entire land of Canaan, hasn't he? He's marked out the entire land of Canaan. Do you understand what I just said? That's all the text is telling us. Abram has moved from Haran, which isn't in Canaan. Haran's up north. He moves into Canaan, and he just traverses the whole area of Canaan. And each major stop, what does he build? An altar, An altar to the Lord. That's all he's done is he's just traversed the land that God promised to give him. But as it reminds us, we've seen it twice, the Canaanites are in the land. All right, is everybody with me? So your silence either means understanding or it means yeah. you absolutely have no idea what I've been yeah. talking about yeah. and you're thinking about the presidential election or something yeah. like that. Um, in, uh, in the beginning of the 12, verse 1, it says a word said to Abraham. And today um, we are led uh, by reason of our faith in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit that comes in at the time of our receiving Christ as our Savior. Was this said, was this different than what, uh, in the sense of, was this audible versus like the Holy Spirit leads us today uh, in, our, in our lives? 
Well, uh, that's the difference between the Old and New Testament, I guess, in one way. But the, the answer seems to be that God is audibly speaking to Abraham directly, personally. Um, the role of the Holy Spirit as indwelling believers as a part of salvation is a New Testament. You have to have the finished work of Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection before the Holy Spirit can come. Now, that's a theological statement that the New Testament makes clear. That doesn't mean the Spirit of God isn't active in the Old Testament, but in terms of, of what is going on, this, it is God directly audibly speaking to Abraham, get out, leave, I'm going to go, I'm going to show you to land, that, you know, but just go. I'm not going to tell you where it is, I'm not going to explain it to you, just go and I'll show you where you are, I want you to settle. And so it's amazing faith of this man. And as we talked a little bit about this last week, the Bible does not explain to us Abram's first introduction to God. doesn't explain that to us. doesn't explain how this... It just explains God gives him a command, he obeys the command, which indicates, again, the main theme of Genesis 12 through 26. Here is an extraordinary man of faith. He listens when God speaks. For you and me, we listen when God speaks and obey when we read it in his word. And the response, expected response that God has is that we will listen and we will obey. So here's Abraham. Now, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm trying to get you to, it's so short. It's like bang, 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 and he keeps moving around. But what's happening is he's traversing the land that God's promised to him. And every key spot, he builds an altar. Now he's down in the Negev. Something else is going to happen. This is a test of Abram's faith. What happens next? Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. Now, this whole area of the world, that's still true today, if it gets adequate rainfall, because by and large, the, the nation of Israel or Canaan at that time is an arid or semi-arid climate, depending where you are. It is very dependent on good rains in the winter, which would be from about November to February. If they do not get good rains in the winter, then the rest of the year, it's extremely dry. And you have a series of years where you don't get good winter rains, you're going to have a drought and you're going to have a famine. Israel just got over one of those. The last two times I was in Israel, they had gotten abundant rains. The Sea of Galilee was high. Everything was lush. Three or four years previous to that, I had been there every year. They were in a drought. The Sea of Galilee kept shrinking. It kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because they weren't getting good winter rains. But the last three years, God sent enormous abundant rain. The Sea of Galilee is up. All the water. I mean, it's just that's, that's the way that area is of the world. And so all it's telling us is they had had a series of very dry seasons, droughts. And if they're dry seasons and droughts, there's not going to be enough food. So where do you go to get the food? Answer, Egypt. Because Egypt is abundant in water because of the Nile River. Then Egypt is not dependent on rain because Egypt is a desert except for one thing. Flowing through Egypt is a big river, the Nile. It's one of the few rivers in the world that starts in the south and flows north. Almost all rivers in the world start in the north and flow south, not the Nile. 
It starts Lake Victoria way down the center of Africa and works its way to the Mediterranean. So it's a rich, rich, rich river valley. So this happened all the time in the ancient world. If there's a famine, you go buy food in Egypt. So what's Abram going to do? So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So that explains why he ends up in Egypt. But it is a test of his faith. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And remember, this woman is 70 years old. And Abram says, I know you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. Sarai was a knockout. She must have really been something. And when the Egyptians see you, you say, and say, this is my wife, then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Probably a good supposition because the Egyptian pharaoh had many, many, many women in his harem. So he sees this gorgeous, voluptuous Sarai. He's going to say, I want her. I'll kill him and get her. That's what Abram's afraid of. What's the point? Abram is not trusting God. So if you don't trust God, what do you do? You make up a solution on your own. And so the solution was this. Verse 13. Say that you are my sister. Now when he lays out that duplicitous, deceptive, lying plan, whom is he interested in protecting? Himself, not Sarai. Because now listen, men, the overwhelming logic of what he is saying is Pharaoh will take my wife into his harem, but I'll live. And that's really what I'm concerned about. This is not one of the high, high element of virtue in the life of Abram. He had a big slip. No, but it, I mean, it, it's a test of his faith. And Abram is going to fail this test. That's one of the things about the Bible. These great leaders are exposed warts and all. When they make a mistake, that mistake is detailed in the Bible. But also, you see God's amazing grace in each one of these lives. Let's continue. Verse, uh, what was I? Verse 13. So say you are my sister, then may go well with me. I don't really care about you. With me, because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, Abram, in one sense, is legitimate, but in another sense, my goodness. I mean, he's, it's like he's willing to do to Sarai something that it's kind of horrible to think about what could happen to his wife. But he's interested in sparing his own life. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that this woman was very beautiful. And the princes of Pharaoh saw her. They praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now that doesn't mean she stays in a guest room up on the fourth floor, way back in the corner. 
It means that she is taken into the harem of Pharaoh. Verse 16. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, meaning the Pharaoh. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That's really significant because the critics of the Bible used to say, here's the reason why the Bible lies. 2000 BC, there were no camels, no domesticated camels. It's been really interesting in the last decade. They have found several examples, both in terms of written literature, in terms of artifacts, and in terms of things on the Egyptian wall that show camels were domesticated by this time. And that's a minor point. You probably don't even know what I'm talking about. But the Bible has been proven. People were saying, ah, it's not. It can't possibly be true. They're not. Yes, there were. We know with absolute certainty that there were domesticated camels used for work. So what are you seeing in verse 16? Despite Abram's duplicity, God is making Abram an even more wealthy man. Abram is going to leave Egypt with more wealth than he entered. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Pharaoh throws Abram out of Egypt. Why? He had been deceived, and he had been living with a man's wife, and not a sister. That's, is that why he threw him out? Uh, yeah. Is there anything else you can think that might cause Pharaoh to get Abram out of his household and out of his country? Because Yahweh was making Pharaoh's life miserable. Oh. And Pharaoh recognizes. Now remember, you have to remember the mindset and worldview in the ancient world. The Egyptians were just like the Mesopotamian. The Egyptians believed in a world filled with gods. And if you didn't treat the gods correctly, they would make your life miserable. So Pharaoh is saying, my life is miserable because of Abram's God. He lied to me, and he's protecting him. So I can't kill him without getting more plagues. So the only thing I can do is get him out, throw him out of Egypt, which is a precursor, a foreshadowing of what will happen in the next 400 years. So Pharaoh figured out yes. Yes. had lied to him. Yes. Yes. How did he figure that out? Well, the text doesn't tell us two possibilities. Either, I mean, remember how they're thinking. A world filled with gods, the God of Abraham. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's just concluded, he lied to me. Or Abraham told him he lied to him. I mean, there are only two possibilities. But it's really instructive because, again, the only way to make sense of it, can I, I don't mean to elaborate too much, but I think it'll help you to understand. 
The ancient Egyptians believed, and this is the hieroglyphic word they used, a world of ma'at. That's the Hebrew word. That's the Egyptian word they used, ma'at. A world of order, a world of predictability. Now, part of that was reinforced by the Nile because they had figured out exactly they could determine to the day when the Nile would flood each year. I mean, it was a very orderly, very orderly world, a very predictable world. And that's, that's how they, and they said the Pharaoh's job is to keep everything orderly. The Pharaoh was a god. He was an incarnate god. He was the incarnation of Osiris and several other gods. And so that was Pharaoh's job. And when things are not orderly and things are out of control, what does that mean? The gods are angry. So we have got to figure out why the gods are angry and correct that, and it'll be back to a world of order. That's what Pharaoh is saying. The Bible doesn't tell us what the plagues were, whether it was sickness. we, We just don't know. But it was making Pharaoh and his court and his life miserable. So what's he said? What's changed? Abram's here. His wife's in my harem. Something's going on here. I've got to figure it out. And he either confronted Abram and he told him, or he just figured it out. You lied to me. That's not your sister. That's your wife. And because it is that kind of a world, the worst thing I could do is kill Abram, because then his gods will make my life even more miserable, so I'm going to kick him out. That is the logic of the Egyptian worldview, 2000 BC. And so he kicks him out of Egypt. But he had given him a lot of animals to have Sarai in his harem. And he says, okay, leave. Leave with all your animals. Just get out of here. Isn't that interesting? 430 years later, that is exactly what will happen. The Israelites will have... have multiplied into a great nation. They'll live in Goshen, and they'll be the slaves of Pharaoh. And Moses comes on the scene and says, let my people go. And the Pharaoh says, no way, I'm letting them go. And so what does, what do the 10 plagues in Exodus chapter 7 through Exodus chapter 11, what do they do? They upset the world of Ma'at in Egypt. And finally, finally, when God kills the firstborn, the tenth and final plague, Pharaoh says, go and take all the wealth with you. And the text says they plunder the wealth of Egypt. So it's, it's interesting. What happened to Abram is a foreshadowing of what, one man, what will happen to the nation 430 years later. Abram, this is amazing. Abraham failed to test, but God still chose to bless him. Abram leaves Egypt even a wealthier man. Yes. Uh, Daryl. Realize also that this information was written or given to Moses to write right. down. That's right. And Moses had this, and whenever God's revealing it to him, and I'd like you if you can elaborate a little bit about how Moses kept all the things straight. Because, I mean, all these places where he stopped and what he did in each spot. Um, God could give that to him. Well, that's, there are two things, of course. One is the supernatural, uh, divine explanation. This is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's preserving it. It's historically accurate and so on. But the second thing, we know this absolutely, too, 
what the, the phrase that we sometimes use is there's an oral tradition. In other words, all of these stories of the patriarch were told and retold and retold and retold generation. We're talking about 400 years, basically. When Moses writes this down, it's about 400 years after Abram, okay? 400 to, 50, uh, four, to 450 years, he begins to write it down. And so it is that oral tradition that then it, Moses begins to take and starts to write it down, but it's all under the inspiration of the Spirit. And we must assume also the revelation of the Spirit, giving him probably Genesis 1 through 11 particularly. That's part of the oral tradition. There, there were lots of those. We have some of those records, actually, extra-biblically. But this is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit then, pro- providing the accuracy of all the details that we can then verify. It's, it is, honestly, it is amazing how much of this is verified extra-biblically. You know what I mean by extra-biblically? Outside of the Bible. Uh, both in place names and some of the events that are associated. It was not unusual. The kinds of things that happened to Sarai and Abram was not unusual in Pharaoh's court. Families, when they're, because of the famine, they go down to Egypt to get food, and it was not unusual for Pharaoh's people to see a very attractive woman. She's a good candidate for the court. We have a lot of examples of that. But Pharaoh is playing with the holy line through which Messiah will come. So Sarai being in the harem of Pharaoh is a threat to that line. So God has got to preserve that. And so the inference we can draw is Pharaoh never took Sarai to bed. That's the inference we should draw. God protected that. And the purity of the line was maintained. Please. It seems to me that I, but it seems to me the opposite that he would know that Sarah was a problem because people that were having sexual intercourse were the people that were getting sick and And that's what went. That that's probably. It would not have taken, I don't think, because of his advisors and the people to figure out what the problem was. I I mean, I think you're right. But obviously when Pharaoh confronts Abram, he doesn't say, no, 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 she's my sister. No, you're right, she's my wife. Get out of here. I don't want you in, and kicks him out of the country. You know, it's going to be really interesting. You'll see the same thing is going to come up with some some of Abram's son, his son and his grandson. They're going to do the same kind of thing. But that's chapters ahead. All right, next chapter. Man, at the rate we're going, at, we'll be done with Genesis in 2024. So. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, well, I don't know about it. <laughs> Question, Please. This 450 years where the Israelites moved Are up. in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so they... They were already there, a lot of them, or a few of them, when Abram came. No, you mean what we just read? Yeah. No, no, no. Abram is the only Jew. None of his, I mean, Isaac hasn't even been born yet. So the Hebrew people haven't, they don't exist yet. The Hebrew people, the Jewish people, whatever you want to call them, they will come from Abraham. Abraham 
And Sarah gave birth to Isaac, who then gave birth to Jacob, who then gives birth to 12 sons, and the 12 sons become the origin of the Israeli nation. 12 tribal groups and clans. Well, then Joseph went back to Egypt. That's correct. correct. One of of the sons of of Jacob. That's correct. Well, actually, he will end up, he will end up, Joseph will end up in Egypt because his his brothers sell him into slavery. That's how he ends up in Egypt. But then Jacob and his clan come down to Egypt, again, because of a famine. That's correct. They are, that's, they, they are the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob and his 12 sons all end up in Egypt. And that's where the nation is born. I mean, 70 that's how, that's how Genesis ends. 70 people, all of the clan of Jacob, his 12 sons and their wives, etc., they all move to the Nile Delta, Goshen. And that's where the nation of Israel will be born. And, uh, and over a 430-year period, there'll be a population explosion. They will go from 70 to 2 million in 430 years. But that's Exodus. I want to do Genesis. <laughs> Let's go to chapter 13. We have about 8, well, we have about 11 or 12 minutes. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had in Lot with him into the Negev. So they go back to the desert, back to the Negev, and we, you know where that is. I gave you a suggestion. Uh, there's no doubt they would have followed this route to Egypt. It's the main road. We have remnants of that. We found it. But, and they settle in here. They would have been very close to Memphis. It's not Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis was where the Pharaoh's court was. And it's Moses, when Mo, uh, sorry, not Moses, excuse me. When Abram would have been there, Abram would have seen the pyramids. Because the pyramids had been, the great pyramids had been built in the old kingdom before Abraham lived. So Abram would have seen the pyramids. You know what I mean by that, don't you? The pyramids, you know what I'm talking about. So he would have seen them. They're right in that valley. So Abram would have seen the greatness of Egypt. But he doesn't, he goes back. He's kicked out, so he goes back to the Negev. And, and, okay, now that should be familiar to you. Now verse 2, Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Where did he get that? from Pharaoh and his court, as well as just the wealth of his family as they had moved. He's a nomad. His wealth is measured in his livestock, but he also has gold and silver. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made their altar at first. So again, just you should know this now. He's just moving back up the King's Highway, back up the Jordan Valley, and he goes back to his tent, where he was in Bethel and Ai. So now he's in the center of Canaan. Are you with me? He's back in the center of Canaan. And there, I'm in the middle of verse 4, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Verse 7, And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. That word strife is a very important Hebrew word. There's, 
this is a strife over land and there's claims, counterclaims. It's not necessarily between Abram and Lot. It's between all their herdsmen and shepherds. Now, what is this telling us? Because of what had happened in Egypt, as well as their family coming out of Mesopotamia, these are two wealthy men in terms of livestock. And livestock need lots of grazing areas. They need not so, lots of land. And it has to be in areas where there is enough to sustain their livestock. And the point is, in the hills of central Canaan, there isn't enough good land. So now, what is going to happen? At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. What's that telling? It's like a parenthesis. Abram and Lot didn't have the best land. The Canaanites did. The Canaanites didn't settle in the mountains. The Canaanites settled in the lush valleys where all the good land was. So Abram and Lot have a problem. So what happens? Abram, verse 8, says to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're related. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, I want you to see how absolutely astonishing this is. This is faith confronting strife. How does faith deal with strife? Abram is being magnanimous here. Abram is being gracious here. Abram is being generous here. Lot, you choose. You choose. And whatever you choose, I'll choose what's, I'll choose what's left. You see what he's doing? If you choose the left, I'll go to the right. If you choose the right, I'll go to the left. You choose. Verse 10. Jim? Yeah. That's, that's his faith in God. Not that he would end up with the best, but that he would be generous by reason of his faith, regardless of how it came. Trusting that God will take care of him but as you'll see in just a minute, he may have had a sneaking suspicion what Lot would choose. Please look at verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the Garden of Eden, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Parenthesis, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Why is Moses telling us this? Lot chooses what looks the best. And did you notice the language? Lot lifted up his eyes, saw, and took. What does that remind you of? Genesis chapter 3. That's exactly what we're supposed to think. And because it mentions like the garden of the Lord, what motivated the deceptiveness of Satan that Eve chooses is what's motivating Lot. 
what looks good always isn't the best. Lot is looking, and this and this is really true. I mean, you know, we're you, maybe you can find this on your map. Here's here's it's in a little box. Bethel and Ai. That's where the, this is the conflict between Abram and Lot. This is a hill area. This is high. This is fairly high. This is in the hills of today we call it the hills of Samaria, but it's the hills right along the Jordan River. And so Lot is standing and he looks at the Jordan Valley. Which today is, it's rich, it's lush, it's good rainfall, etc. He looks like, well, obviously I'm going to choose that. If you're giving me a choice, I'm going to choose that. And Abraham had said, whatever you choose, I'll choose the other. That means Abraham is going to choose the land that God promised him. He's going to choose Canaan. So Abraham says, all right, if you choose that, then I'll choose what's left. And that's exactly what happened. So verse... 11 says, so Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated. So Lot goes east and goes into the Jordan Valley. Canaan, verse 12, is where Abram settled. Well, Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, you'll see it on your map it is probably true that Sodom is the very southern end of the Dead Sea. And you'll see in a little box there on the right of your map, right above the Syrio-Arabian Desert, little box that says the possible location of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adna, and Zeboim. They're little towns and cities we're going to start reading about in just a minute. So Abraham looks at that and says, okay, you chose the Jordan Valley. I will just choose Canaan. And verse 13 introduces us to an important thought. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. What looks the best may not be the best. So all Moses is doing, because see, Moses knows where this is all headed, and he writes it down under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he says, just a reminder, this is where Sodom is. Just a reminder that people that live there are not God-honoring. Just a reminder, these are people that willfully and intentionally defy Yahweh. That's what Lot chose. You following So you have this amazing study in contrast between Abram and Lot. Look at verse 14. Yahweh, the Lord, said to Abraham after Lot had separated him, lift up your eyes. Let your eye go from verse 14 up to verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes. God says to Abram in verse 14, lift up your eyes. It's exactly the same language. Where the one, it's active. He is lifting up his eyes. In verse 14, it's command. Abram, you lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Look north, look south, look east, look west. For this is the land I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that one can count the dust of the earth, there your offspring will be. What has God just summarized? Hint. Look at the board. 
He just summarized the covenant. He just summarized, Abram, I want to remind you of the promise I made to you. Abram, you chose wisely. Because you chose to stay in the land that I promised you. And Abram, your choice is a choice of faith. I will honor that choice. I want to remind you of the promise I made. This is the land I'll give you. As far as you can see in every direction, that's the land I'm going to give you and your offspring. And your offspring will be as numerous. It's hyperbole. It's exaggerated language. Like the dust. If you can count the dust, then you can count the offsprings of Abraham. All right, I'm out of time. Verse 17, just, okay, do it again. Walk all the land, because that's what I'm going to give you. Now listen, I've got to quit. Reminder, next week I'm not going to be here. You can gather and you can have a wonderful time, but I'm not going to be here. So we'll see you. I'll see you in two weeks.